Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Saturday. Saturday, February 17th. Things are getting 2024. Away. You got that right. Yeah. Things are getting away from us because we had a big event this week. It was the debut of Rafaela Abuhoff. Right. Uh, the uh, new a daughter. beautiful little girl. Daughter of uh, Granger and Nico's sister. To Hasbone in Denville, New Jersey. Hasboy. On February 13th, on the eve right. of Valentine's Day. Eve of Valentine's Day on the close of a big snowstorm well, day. Well, as Tamsin said to me a couple of days earlier, you know, it's one of those situations where there's a due date, but you never know. And we knew that we had to rush out to Denville when the time came. Just keep our eye on Hasbone. And there has to be an eye on Hasbone every minute. Uh, so that uh, Granger and Nico could go to the hospital together. And when word came out that a snowstorm was predicted for Tuesday morning, Tamsin said to me, that is when the baby will be born. And Tamsin was, of course, correct. We got the call Tuesday morning. The snow was coming down like crazy. And Granger said, how soon can you be here in Denville? <laughs> and I said to him, we cannot even get out of the driveway. So he found a sitter for a couple of hours we somehow got out of the driveway, and our timing was good because even though there were five to seven inches of snow, it was just and even though to clear. Yeah. even though a half mile down the road there was a tree across the and road, we had to get around. We intrepidly, it was drove it's, around. It's a long it. story. We, we off roaded. That's right. There'll be a movie about this someday. <laughs> but in any event, we got out to Denville to uh, take charge of Hasbone, and Granger uh, Nico did the rest. Uh, in particular, Nico. So uh, there we go. So you know, that... I've driven by that area where we went around the tree. Yeah, it actually doesn't look drivable. What do you mean, now? It doesn't look. Yeah, drivable? I'm not sure I, how I we yesterday. did that. I'm not sure how we did that. I think you did it. You did it. I did it, but I don't even know how. It's driving. So in any event, I'm, uh, I'm going to take you there and show you. Okay. So. Uh, so that was the big event. So that was great. So uh, then we stayed a few days in Denville. Uh, keeping a sharp eye on Hosbone, as one does, because, uh, you know, you got to keep an eye on that boy. He's an active little boy. But the other thing is we've had snow. And they eventually came home. Yeah, they, of course. They Rafaela got, came home. On Thursday. And eventually, Hazi came home from school. Yeah. And he marched in, he took one look, and said, what's that baby? <laughs> is that what he said? Yes. What's that baby? Well, he might be surprised that the baby sticks around as long as she does, but uh, we'll see. Hasbone is difficult to predict. So we, uh, we've we been uh, skiing, uh, well, we skied today, because we got another another snow squall uh, last night this morning. It was not a morning. squall, Daniel. Storm. Yeah. Blizzard. Uh, we got a few more inches, and we were out there. Overnight. Trepid skiers that we, we are. So what we have is, what do we call our skis? Our, uh, they are Altai... Hoke skis. Is that what they're called? Okay. Yes. A L T A I. Yeah. So you strap them on. Okay. You strap them on any pair of boots. And they're short and fat. Yeah. And Not super short. So uh, what would you say? A little over three feet, three and a half feet, or something. Yeah, four feet. But they're they're, they're uh, they operate as cross country skis, but they're kind of a short version. And again, you put them on any shoe or boot. And, uh, you know, it's the experience. It's, it's a ski-like experience. They like to describe it as between a ski and a snowshoe. Yeah. So right. you can kind of trudge about right. with a little bit of, you know, sliding. Right. 
But then we saw last week, by coincidence, we've never seen this. You bought it a few years ago from L.L. Bean. I think they still sell it. But uh, there was an article in the journal about something that looked a lot like it. And it's called, what is it called? Uh, a ski skate or something Ski like. skates. Ski skates. And they're just like ours, but they're even shorter. Well, there was an article by someone uh, in the Wall Street Journal saying, I kayak, I raft, I scuba drive, scuba dive, I snowshoe, but I cannot ski. Yeah, we're, we're close Which to is, that. Yeah, we're pretty... We're close, but we don't yeah, scuba we're drive. not very close to that. But anyway, <laughs> we cannot ski. Yeah, we're not going to ski. And we've tried. Uh, but um, so this person... Saw somebody, saw people coming down yeah. the slope, seemed to be on their bare feet. Yeah. And it turned out they're wearing these things called ski skates. The same idea. And what this, we this have. brand yeah. was Snow Feet Mini Ski Skates. Yeah. And they cost about 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I Googled it. And there are, you know, a variety of brands at around 200 bucks, anywhere from one, one something to for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, they will strap onto any boots, mm-hmm. which is cool. And uh, you can uh, set off in them. Well, you read about it. I didn't, is it very similar to what we have? It's just shorter? And perhaps a even, lot even shorter. More a lot shorter. So a you can't shorter. do much gliding on right. these, I don't so, think. So what are you doing? Um, I'm not really sure. Okay. Okay. Um there's a little bit of gliding, a little bit, uh, let's see. Um, I mean, some people can do anything on them. Yeah, right. Um, but they say they, because of the way they're made, they might be tougher to get through deep snow or stop when going very fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so, anyway, they're fun. They're somewhere, I guess, they at least, you can glide to some extent. If you have some sort of track. You can glide to some extent, which you can't do on the snowshoes. We talked a couple no, you weeks can't do ago on the, uh, on the new snowshoes we tried, right. which seemed very good as well. But these are, you know, these are for, you know, right, relatively... But you can glide on on air skis. You can glide. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm comparing them to air skis. I'm just saying they're even shorter than air skis. And yeah, but they cost about half as much as air skis. Really? Air skis are that expensive? I didn't no, 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 no. No, I'm not. No, air skis no. run Air skis cost... Yeah. Now that I think of it, about two hundred and fifty dollars yeah. per, per nine, set. Nineteen twenty-seven. Who knows what they cost now? But the, it's not about the cost. No, it's still available. The point is that ours is comparable, but ours is more like a ski than these skates. But uh, yeah, it's a similar principle. Anyway, yeah, but uh, you know, it might be fun to. Uh, We're not buying another pair. Why not? We got, we got what we got. We got lots of people coming here. No, I mean, no, no. Somebody we, may want to use them. We have what we have. You can, we have what it we have. It snows every two years, and it stays on the ground for about 25 yeah, minutes. It snows every three years. Oh, it's great. It's great. All right, so the other thing is, uh, it's not like we're doing nothing. We've discovered some new restaurants, uh, which is interesting and nice because, you know, it's not often in these remote regions that you see new restaurants open. Well, loyal and, listeners will remark that we've been whining about restaurants you, no, for a while. We've been trudging across you've country. Been, you've been whining. You've to been, uh, been try whining, to find right, other right. restaurants to go to. We we're very excited about restaurants in New York, etc. But right. uh, we keep coming home to Nada, Niente, yeah. Nick's. I don't know what Niente is, but the Nada, I, I'm on to that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a restaurant desert out here, but, uh, two new places open. One's called the National, 
by and the woman who opened it we know well because we we go to the bamboo house the place that we get sushi uh and the like and now she's opened a place which is she calls fusion it's a big bar it's kind of it's kind of nice and it's in frenchtown and there's another place in frenchtown called fin bar which is even more clearly a, a big bar with a very limited menu we happen to meet the guy who's running that place at yet a third restaurant a few weeks ago and that was a really cool place. We were there just uh, two nights ago. Uh, they had a wonderful selection of beers, and you said nice selection of wines. Uh, pretty much vegetarian offerings with one exception, but really only three entrees. So it's a very limited menu, and I think that's their plan. It might vary a little bit, but... Uh, well, they had described it. We've been reading about it for yeah. a while. They described it as vegetable-forward. Yeah, okay. That's the way they... That's I, it. That's I a, like that. Do you? I, like, I yeah. think it's a terrible because I, No. Well, I, I don't know. I think it brings the it's, idea it's that it's precious. not vegetarian. Yeah. But um, I always felt that Julie's Loving Oven was vegetable-forward. Yeah. It, you know... I just don't like the phrase. It's, it's, You're it's so not, particular. Vegetable forward. It's a little precious. But here's the thing. Here, here's some interesting forward. things, okay? Why? Yeah. Both are in a small town. Yeah. A little bit north of here. Very they're small, both, cute they're, town. They're both in the same small town. Yes. Yeah. So they opened and, in the same week. Right. So there you go. And... And... The price points. Yeah. You want to talk about price points? They're very reasonable. But yeah. they're very sensitive to that. They're very sensitive to that. It's not a real... Uh, I don't know. It's it's not a, a high tone town. So if you want to get a clientele right away, especially if you have a bar orientation, you're sensitive to the price. So their price points is, with rare exceptions, the entrees are twenty dollars or under. Rare exceptions, and uh, I can see the the beer menu is eight dollars. Eight dollars for a glass of beer. You can't beat that. Uh, most restaurants. It's cool. And all of the wines by the glass. Yeah, are I believe. Were less than is being charged at the Mohonk oh, Mountain. Oh, yeah, was, that's a <laughs> and they're much better wines. And much better but, but so it's clear. They said, uh, we actually talked to Ethan, the manager of Thin Bar. Yeah. He said they're trying to, they want to encourage, um, you know, the local community to come out yeah. and uh, come regularly. I mean, they, they don't want They want people to, there. Yeah. So we'll see if they can actually, it's, it's a beautiful place. But it's an attractive place. Have. It's trying to be a high-end place that uh, welcomes... That's why I'm trying to be high-end. It's, it's trying to it's be pretty, It's fancy. It's, it's fancy. No, it's not, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's cute and homey and, and sure. uh, cozy. It's Brooklyn. It's, it's, Bro- it's Brooklyn from 20 years ago. So that, I think, is interesting. I think it's interesting when people want and to do something crowd. nice. Younger crowd. With... Um, you know, yeah, they want a neighborhood. I'm telling you, it's, it's a neighborhood place. People go out. They don't have to make a lot of plans. It's not very dressy. You know, you get a couple of beers. You get a glass of wine. Maybe you get maybe vegetable forward uh, platter or something or even a thing of fries or something. That's that's what they want. And they want to fill the place up. And they will. And and, and the Thin Boar place is pretty interesting music. Uh, it was a little loud, but, you know, it's a lively place. It's yeah. cool. It's yeah. cool. And the national was Asian fusion. Yeah, so the, and, a little different you know, vibe, but uh, not one hundred percent. But they also had have a music venue in the basement, right? Live music, um, live music. So you know, Frenchtown seems like a cool town. It, it is a happening town. It's just about uh, a lot of things going on. It's just about I don't know, fifteen or sixteen miles north of right. um, Lambertville, and. It's got now a bakery. 
Yeah. We tried out the bakery yeah, recently. Yeah, we tried it today. Yeah. Very good. Right. Um, it, uh, it's got a bookstore. It's got gift stores. It's got quite a few restaurants. It's got a record it's got store. A it's commu- got a bicycle store. It's got a lot of stuff. It's got a community arts center, yeah. brand new art yard. Oh, yeah, um, right, yeah. That is screening things, you know, having exhibitions, having performances. It's art forward, I think. That's it's art, right, you know, right. and it's got the Delaware River. Yeah, well, it's got the Delaware River. I would put that ahead of Art York, honestly. Um, so it's, Frenchtown is a very nice town. Anyway, it's Art-Yard, exciting. Art York is a little precious for me. It's yeah. exciting that these restaurants uh, seem to be a little bit new and different. Yeah. Right? And, uh Maybe we're emerging from this long pandemic sleep. The pandemic's got nothing to do with it. They, they, they never they never had restaurants in Frenchtown before the pandemic. No, they did. They no, did. Not much. Come on. Come on. Did. What, in the no, 1970s? The, Daniel, you know and I know a lot. If, whether it was not solely the pandemic, it's, it's hardly but a the pandemic. lot. A lot of restaurants closed down. I know, but not in Frenchtown. Frenchtown all over, all not over. in Frenchtown. Frenchtown didn't have any places. The National has been closed for years. The uh, Finbar place has been closed for years. Okay, it's it, it's not it. So what are we arguing about? I'm just telling restaurants you. Restaurants are opening up. Right, it's got nothing. The pandemic. No, but the pandemic it. had a lot to do with it because uh, not closing them, yeah. but preventing new things from happening. Because there wasn't the labor, there wasn't the supplies, there wasn't the money. Maybe, okay? but I don't know. I, I don't think. The yeah, pandemic, I know you don't know. You clearly the don't know. The pandemic has nothing to do with it. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So Bob Moore passed away. Bob Moore is is the Bob behind Bob's uh, Red Mill, uh, which is the. Uh, this whole, is funny. Why is this even your story? Uh, I don't know. It's all about. You know, whole grains. Whole grains. Whole, this guy is, Did you ever use a whole grain? You're the one who buys this stuff. Right. I mean, so why know. why are you telling this story? I well, don't even know. It's it's kind of a weird story. You want to talk about it? No, you go can ahead. talk about it. Well, I didn't prepare. He makes uh, Bob's Red Mill has all these uh, whole grain products, uh, including stone ground sorghum flour, paleo style muesli, whole wheat pearl couscous. Uh, energy bars, cake, and soup mixes, and the like. We, we no, we know. He has acres of uh, presence in the Whole Foods. Right. And many, many other stores. You know, has a lot you of can it, get, uh, Delicious uh, Orchards is about six or seven of his products, too. I mean, uh, yeah, he's got these little the bags. Giant has it. Shop really? has it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, he's got great distribution. If, if you want, you know, nine times out of ten, if you want something that's yeah. whole grain. It's going to be from Bob's Red Mill. Is that right? Whether it's almond flour ground up or steel cut oats or, you know, and there are a zillion different kinds of flour they provide. The point is, the guy didn't know what the heck he was doing. Yeah. He was lost. He was like spinning his wheels. He was. And and a couple times he came in and out of this, uh, you know, old, you know, he, he seemed charmed by the tradition of stone grinding. Well, well no, he, here's things. what happens. He He's in a library in Redding, California, and he, he runs across a book called John Coffey's Mill by George Woodbury, which chronicled the author's restoration of a rundown family flour mill in New Hampshire. And uh, Morris said it was a charming story, and uh, he kind of connected with it. And uh, he realized that, uh, you know, from the book, at least he got the impression that if you made whole wheat flour and cornmeal, people would beat a path to your door. And that's, in fact, what happened. He 
scattered around for old millstones from the 19th century and other necessary equipment. He converted uh, an old hut into uh, the basis of a factory. His family worked there. A Quonset hut, yes. It was an old hut. You make it sound like it was, you know, some little shack. An old Quonset hut. I don't know what a Quonset hut is, honestly. You do, too. It's it's those rounded, corrugated metal... Don't know. Uh, so in any event, uh, his family worked. Their business was good. But here's the weird thing. Weird or odd or interesting. Uh, so they were doing all right. So he retired when he was 50. And his family, uh, he and his wife, uh, moved to Portland. Remember, they were in Redding, California. Now they're in Portland. And his idea was he wanted to pursue study at the seminary because it was his lifelong dream to learn to read the Bible in its original languages, including Hebrew and Greek. Turns out that's hard. Turns out that's hard. So they weren't doing too well with that. They were walking along, struggling with vocabulary, and he happened on to another mill, which looked like it had just been closed and perhaps was going to be sold. And it was like a sign or something like that. He said... It was uh, about to be torn down. Well, that's what he found out when he called. And then he, uh, he bought that place, and he started going great guns in Portland. That's so funny that he says, all right, here's something I know. Yeah. Here's something I can do. Yeah. Let's go back to that. Well, so in the same week that uh, Bob Moore passed away... Well, anyway, can yeah, I well, just say? Yeah. Great products. Oh, really? Okay. Use a lot of them. You know, them. it's funny. It says he, he resisted all uh, offers to sell the business. He obviously was a pretty serious, uh, perhaps fairly described as a religious person. He had, you know, fundamental values. The business is worth a zillion dollars. Uh, it's a $100 million a year business. Nothing to sneeze at. But, in you know, there are big businesses out there for $100 million is not a big deal. Hazi so, eats pancakes yeah. from his mix. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Hazi's very discriminating. So the same week that uh, Bob Moore died, uh, William Post died. Uh, William Post did not develop uh, any, any kind of uh, whole milk products. William Post invented Pop-Tarts. The opposite the, the, the of opposite. whole grain. <laughs> Diametrically opposed food. Was Pop-Tarts. And yet... He didn't work for... An American staple. Exactly. He's got the same kind of obituary. I mean, he didn't work for uh, a small Bob's Red Mill. He worked for Kellogg's. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he got hired to Kellogg's. Kellogg's. Here's something that I didn't know. And it, to me, it's it's a mystery that has now been solved as to which came first. Uh, apparently, the way Pop-Tarts came apart was that uh, Kellogg's noticed that uh, one of their competitors... Uh, I'm going to say who who it was, uh, had developed uh, a similar product called Toastums. Uh, I guess that was the, the Post Company, and um, which is interesting to me because I remember Toastums and Pop-Tarts coming up about the same time, and I always wondered which came first, and it turns out that Postums came up first. Did you eat Pop-Tarts? Yeah, not too often. Did you eat Pop-Tarts? Not really. But you knew what they were? Yeah. It's yeah, hard it, not to know. It's got to be the the most unhealthy. Well, when food. were they invented? Um, in the sixties. Uh, in the sixties, yes, nineteen sixty four. So the trick was that you could put them in the toaster. Well, you should describe. And they them wouldn't. First. Does everybody know what a pop tart? Yes, is? everybody knows what a pop okay, tart is. Right, we're not describing enough. that. That you could put it in the toaster and it wouldn't drip uh, jam. Or stuff all over well, your toast. Right, yes. So, but the original, the way I think of Pop-Tarts, the only time we ever tried them, maybe only had them once or twice, uh, honestly, is you can put them in the toaster and they come out and there are these hot things which had, uh, you know, jam inside. Right, right. yes. And uh, then a couple of years into it, he came up with the idea to put frosting on. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, people said, that's crazy because you're going to put frosting in the toaster. It's going to be a disaster. And he said it took him about one day to figure out how to put the frosting on without it being a disaster. And it really took off even more with the frosting. Now, I have never had nor even seen. I've never seen a Pop-Tarts with frosting on, even though I'm highly aware that that's a thing. I mean, do you know, are you uh, familiar with that? I don't eat a Pop-Tarts. All right, so there you go. So, um... And, 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 and of course, just to make the story as complete as it ought to be, in the history of Kellogg's that's uh, published on the company's website, uh, the creation of the Pop-Tarts is, uh, is credited to the chief executive, William Lamoth. Um, and in fact, uh, the Times is here to subtly correct that. He's taking credit for it. But the truth is, William posted it. What William Lamoth did do was he gave the name to Pop-Tarts and uh, it was a name derived from pop art. He thought that was a trendy thing, pop tarts instead of pop art. That's where it comes from. Very fun. Well, there you go. So there you go. Pop, but diametrically opposed, opposed to Bob's milk. And they I came out the same yeah. time. They're both the same the lovable is, figures. And, and they're, they're, I'm, there's a very they're delicious. Yeah, are they? Yes. They're. Are you kidding? Me? That's why they're so popular, and and they will kill you. I mean, they will, will kill you. They're, you know, filled with sugar and fat and things, all the things that make something delicious. And they're a prepared food. So, you know, don't go out and think, well, this is, uh, wow. you know, retro, homey, good old time. I, you know, probably they've exchanged the fats in it, you know, from trans fats to something better. I don't even know. Wow. But still, this is... But there are great similarities between these two fellows. They're both... In their, in their mid-90s, they're both religious people. They're avid church-going types, supporters of the church. They're very similar people. They probably would play gin rummy. They would have played gin rummy with each other into all hours if they had known You know what they other. say, God hates the sin, not the sinner. I, I guess. I mean, uh, they, they both seem the same type of guy. And they came up with very different solutions. But uh, notable, notable solutions. Okay. So they're... Let's move on. Let's move on to the guy who has the answer to all problems. <laughs> so this is funny. The uh, other day you came running in with the Sunday Times. Yeah. Excited to tell him, did you see this? Yeah. And I'm like, what is he talking about now? What baseball player has had a heart attack? Oh, my I, God. You know? And uh, turned out, big article on your friend and mine, David Venable. I didn't even know he had a last name. I mean, it's interesting yeah. that he has a last name. David in the Kitchen is uh, how we think of him. Oh, and we, Yes, we've talked about him before. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, we were turned on to him by Sadie a few years ago um, when we, you know, we're stuck somewhere on a rainy day with no TV yeah. uh, except, uh, you know, the basic channels. And uh, there is David selling up a storm. And it turns out... People love him. He's a sensation. He, he, so he's, he's an icon. I mean, it's been on many, many years, right? Yeah. 30 years, 50 uh, years, yeah. I don't even know, on, yeah. on the QVC. And um, so this is an article by a fairly young person, okay? Oh, okay. Um, saying, uh, you know, he, you know, he's not, he's, he, he says, I don't think I'm part of Venable's target demographic. I can't cook. I don't like accumulating things. I appreciate when a living space feels homey, but I'm more content in a spare room than a curated one. Still, I've become one of the many David Venable faithful. Regardless what he's selling, I'm watching. 
Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, pretty much similar to the way that we feel. We enjoy watching him. Yeah. Now, we've not bought anything from no, him. No, we're not going But, to. Uh, it, you know, I oh, mean. No, you have a birthday coming up. So. Oh, well, well, there is that. Um, and it's just, uh, we are charmed by his tremendous uh, skills in terms of sales and entertainment. He's an appealing guy, and he's, he's very interesting, and he's not pushing too hard. Well, you know, there was there's something in there. I mean, you should say what you want to. No, think no, you have a couple tell points. me. Well, to me, there's one little past passage in that which captures a little bit of the way he approaches things. He's not pushing too hard, but he's kind of painting a compelling picture. Which which you identify? Oh, with. you mean the thing where he says, you know, I'm not, um, no, 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 not trying to scare you. This is just, I'm just giving you good information. No, it's not that. Anyway, oh. he's on. He has various shows this, on QVC, this is to me. and he's the host. Okay. And no matter what comes up, he's got to sell it. Whether it's Tupperware, whether it's a broom, whether it's an automatic trash can mm-hmm. open opener, etc. He has a specific show. Yeah, but th- th- this is what captures. David in the kitchen. All right. Okay. Here we go. That focuses on food-related items. Okay. So Venable, uh, he doesn't promise that any particular item will solve all your problems. Rather, he imagines a life for the viewer already brimming with warmth. When What he's selling can make your life a little bit less unwieldy. You might feel compelled to buy those airtight, spill-proof, lock-and-lock storage containers, not just because they're selling out fast. And not because the deal will only last tonight, but also because with Venable's encouragement, you can imagine walking to your parents' home, holding your child's hand, juggling a stack of gifts and laughing so hard you might drop your homemade hot dish on your way to the front door. With lock and lock proprietary technology, however, you can be confident that your casserole won't spill. Right. That's what it is. He paints this picture. It's very comfortable. It's he's kind of it's a, it's a life that one's drawn to, and the product is part of that. Picture. Well, you're drawn to him. Yeah. And he's six foot six. Well, yes. He's a big guy. Yeah. He's got a slight southern drawl. Okay. That doesn't hurt. Uh, no, and he, you know, he's a very welcoming, homey, you know, food centric guy. Yeah. Even though he's sworn off sugar and he's lost a lot of weight recently, right. um, but he's he's also, but it, you know, but it's the classic show don't tell. In other words, he's not saying buy this and your life will be better. Buy this and you will accomplish that. He's just painting the word picture and he's saying here's how this product fits into a certain wonderful moment. And 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 it sends us up a liberal message. Everybody wants those moments, and the product lends itself to making those moments, putting those moments within reach. Right. That's what's going on, and uh, he does it in a very natural way. I don't even know how deliberate it is. And he's funny in the um, you know in Kitchen with David because he knows a lot about food, and he will talk about. I mean, I think oh, Sadie, he does know. He's Sadie, a cook. Sadie once gave uh, me a or somebody gave Sadie a cookbook. Yeah. Um, from in the kitchen with yeah. David has his recipes, but on the other end, he will say things like, "There's no shame in your game. If you buy uh, the cupcakes right. at the at the bakery right. and then put them in the lock and lock yeah. and take them to school right. and let people think what they want to think, um, you know, he's but, non-judgmental. He's he's a warm guy. He's a guy. The they're the the um, product." makers, sellers who are there live for the moment of his happy dance. Well, I, I don't yeah, I don't get get that. But yes. You would get it. Why? 
You should get it. No, I because don't. when he does that, sales go not, up. I don't care about their sales. My, 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 no, my, if you're selling something, you care about yeah, their sales. No, because it's, sales. to me, that, that's all sales. But what, what, what appeals no, to me... No, Daniel, Daniel, it's all about sales. What are you, crazy? I, well, I don't know why... What is wrong with you? I know it's about sales. We, we enjoy this show, but one of the reasons we enjoy it is that it is successful. But, but, but it I is love, good. But I he's love, a master. Yes, but I, what he's a master at is misdirection. In other words, when he's selling a frying pan, okay? He's selling a frying pan. Naturally, it's non-stick. Here's the way he does it. He doesn't have the pan. He doesn't say, look, it won't scratch. He doesn't say, look how light it is. He doesn't say, look how cheap it is. He has six burners going with six frying pans filled with food. And he goes one by one. He says, oh, look at that wonderful chicken fricassee. It has this and this. And look at these mashed potatoes, all with a little pepper and a little butter. And look at this with the broccoli steaming here. And he keeps talking about the food in the frying pan. He's not selling the food. You're not getting the food. He's only talking about the food. But the frying pan is what's selling. That's yeah. That's, that's amazing. A master of selling. That's, I agree with that. Okay. But, but that's that's. But he also he does demonstrate the stuff. He does, but it, it's in a very subtle way. No, not necessarily. Well, I, I think so. And when it doesn't work, he keeps moving. Yeah. Well, he just keeps moving. Anyway, um, so we, it's funny we have the, found him. Funny to see the Times saluting him. Because it's not a New York Times thing, right? As you yeah. say, not in the demographic. You would think they turn their nose up at him, as but the Times does turn their nose up. We enjoy that. Uh, we enjoy his performance. Well, now we can continue to do so with a clear conscience, right? So now you have something about a copy. There's nothing new under the sun, Dan. Oh, is that right? You know, it, it's not that weird that we're there with zillions of other people in America. Getting a kick out of David, we're we're not buying anything. I, there know, is that problem. I, I don't know. We're, I, I so, you know we're not high on his list, right. but he's high on our list. Okay, right. keep going. What do you got? Speaking yeah. of high yeah. on someone's list, yeah. there's an article in the New York Times with a picture of a giant statue that's just been installed uh, on the Capitoline Hill by the Capitoline Museums. And uh, it's Constantine, the first Roman emperor who converted Christianity. Well, I'm lost now. Where is this statue? In Rome. In Rome, okay. Uh, Yeah, all right, fine. And it's brand new. Yeah. It's a kind of recreation of a giant colossus, a really big statue of Constantine. Um which they have fragments of in the Capitoline Museum, which were found like during the 15th century yeah. uh, near the Colosseum somewhere. Yeah. And uh, for an exhibition, a company called Factum Foundation mm-hmm. took the fragments, the gigantic fragments, which you've seen, mm-hmm. you and Zeke have seen and posed for pictures mm-hmm. by these giant pieces of a head, a hand, Etc. Yeah. He took these fragments and uh, scanned them. Did the magical, you know, three D printing thing yeah, right. of creating a giant, you know, original sized sculpture of Constantine as it must have been yeah. back when it was first made. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this was for an exhibition in twenty twenty two in uh, Milan, and now it's been. Move to Rome, it'll be on exhibition. Yeah, but, but here's what's funny, the way you describe it. You say they're recreating a statue. It's a statue that no one's ever seen. 
Okay, you're assuming no, there was statues. People in Rome saw it. When? It, when it was made. When? How long In the ago? time of Constantine. I know, but no one, we don't know that. We don't, there's no pictures of that. There's no photograph of that. We have the fragments. We have the fragments. Why does it bother you? It doesn't bother me, but what I'm saying. It seems to bother you. It doesn't bother me, but, but it, it, what they're doing is they're taking a foot and they're saying, if this was the foot of a large statue, this is what the large statue might well be. That's what yeah, they're doing. That, I mean, that's, that's an interesting scientific problem it is you it's you know I you're agree. triangulating you're you're saying i have the foot i have a piece of the elbow i have the head right. if we put this all together with the proportions of those items we should be able to figure out how long the leg is right. how high the torso is right. etc and they've done that not out of marble or anything it's some kind of polyresin right. something or other um yeah, and so it, now we can see we can look at something, seeing basically the same thing that people thousands of years oh, ago. The, all right, I'm just at, at this point, there is, and a, could see. there is a Jurassic right. Park element to this. There is the notion of you've got a little bit of the DNA, you've got a little bit of the remains, and you're going <laughs> to blow it up into some lifelike thing. That's what's going on. I'm not against it. I'm just well, it's, a, it's an interesting piece yeah. of Constantine's like right. media campaign. Okay, okay, his PR campaign, um, because he's trying to you know, become the latest, greatest emperor. He was trying to. Yes. We're going, we're... He was trying to. Swinging from the past to the... All right. Uh, But that's what he was doing. Okay. He was promoting himself. Yeah. And he is pretty much comparing himself to, like, Jupiter. Because there would have been giant colossus sculptures of Jupiter that one would, you know, honor and et cetera. Right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not an unheard of strategy for a leader yeah. to change okay. religion. If indeed okay. there was a sculpture like that. Sometimes. Then, it, then I agree with you. That's what. There were. Was. We had. I'm telling you, I, you, you're bought into the fact that there was a sculpture like this. How do you really know? What, did, what do you think the Parthenon was all about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to get. Palace Athena and all that? Yeah. How are you going to tell me that that's going to demonstrate that there was a sculpture like this? You don't know. Okay. But, uh, look, if they're going to take... I do know. Everybody knows. All right. Okay? All right. You're the only one who doesn't know. All right. Okay, anyway, so here we have... Here we have Constantine, you know, uh, creating his own, you know, almost... um, godlike image, yeah. all right, uh, to be presented. And, uh, you know, now we can see, we've always been able to see the bits and pieces of it. Now we're seeing it in its original condition. Okay. All right? All right. It's not that it never existed before. It got broke up. All right. But we don't have all the pieces. Why? We don't need all the okay. pieces. All we right. can extrapolate. All right. So you've got the sculpture. And how, Boy, big, how tall is the sculpture? It's very tall. <laughs> Be more specific. Like 11 or 13 meters. 40 feet high. Yes. It's 40 feet high. And to be honest, yeah. I've said this before. Yeah. He looks a little cartoonish. When you blow up features that much, right. it's the same thing when you look at the recreations of the Palace Athena right. um, Colossus down in Nashville, at the Nashville Parthenon. When you blow up figure, features that much, they tend to look... A little bit All right. cartoonish. So, so for comparison, 
Yeah. How big is this sculpture compared to the sculpture of Lincoln in Washington? Well, it turns out yes. the sculpture of Lincoln sitting down yeah. is only 19 feet high. So this is twice as high. This, yeah, this is like 40-odd feet right. high. Okay. All right. But but you do agree. And Lincoln the, looks fine. Yeah, okay, you agree. Right? Lincoln sculpture Lincoln is looks good. believable. Yeah. He looks like a man. Right. Um, and uh, and this little uh, Constantine yeah. looks yeah. a little bit, you know, dull. Okay. At, at the very least. Well, it's going to be anyway, impressive. But anyway, he's it's huge. Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. you feel like, yeah, maybe I should. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Pay taxes to him. I don't know. He's pretty big. <laughs> so maybe it did the job. Yeah. Anyway, it's in Rome. You can see it at least till 2025. Okay. And, uh, you know, it would be fun. Well, where are they going to put it in 2025? It doesn't sound like you can move this thing around too easily. It's, uh, uh, right. They, they have to find a yeah. good place to put it. It's That's got to be true. someplace. That's right? true. Yeah. It, take, it takes up a lot of room. Yeah. And, you know, not everybody's going to be wild about it. But it would be fun yeah. to go to Rome. Yeah. Go in the Capitol line, the little courtyard where the fragments are. Look at the fragments and then look at this recreation and see what you think. Okay. But anyway, it harkens back to a simpler time. When somebody wanted to impress people, they just made a gigantic sculpture. By the way, it may not have always been a sculpture mm -hmm. of Constantine. There are people who think he had uh, sculptors rework an old Jupiter sculpture mm -hmm. to have his features. So, you know, conservatious, I don't know. Um, so speaking of big things, yeah. uh, the Times had a little article about big stores. Right. Somebody has written a book, okay, David N. Schwartz, yeah. And his wife, Susan, yeah. uh, have written a book about Costco. So I just, you know, it's too late for a Christmas gift, too late for a birthday gift. I could have put it on your list because yeah. um, I know you're a Costco devotee. Oh, yeah, yeah. The last time this guy wrote a book, it was about Enrico Fermi. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, and the book was called The, the Last Man, Man Who, Who Knew, Knew Everything. Everything. Right, 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 right. right. Um, so that think, sounds actually pretty interesting. I don't think it was This is well. just, yeah. he and his wife went around to all the Costco's. Well, it was her idea. They could. It was her idea. Hundreds said, of Costco's. Here's an idea, honey. Let's do this. Let's go shopping. And they went to a lot of Costco's and wrote them out. Um, the sad thing is... They wrote this whole book, yeah. and then they couldn't get it published, so they right. self-published. And the amazing thing is, the Times wrote about it. No, I don't think it's so amazing. Um, the guy who wrote the article, yeah, um, James Barron, yeah, actually, um, Ferguson's lived next to him in uh, um, New York. Is that right? We were all kids and lived in New York. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so he's about our age. Yeah. This David Schwartz is almost exactly our age. Graduated from Stanford in 1976. So I think he just had friends yeah, okay. who helped him with a little article. All right, well, all right. But anyway, if you're dying to read about, about you're Costco. not that interested in Constantine, yeah. and you want to read about something big. Let me tell you something. If you're going to find a 40-foot sculpture of anybody in a store, it's going to be in Costco. Because they're going to have the room for it. So uh, you can look forward to that. I'm, you know what? I'm pretty darn positive yeah. they have some 40-foot inflatables. Well, maybe they do. Uh, all right. So finally, a couple of interesting obituaries. David Kahn passed away. I never heard of David Kahn. But David Kahn wrote a book called The Code Breakers. And The Code Breakers in 1967 was a very much a hit book. Sold 75,000 copies in hard 
copy about the subject matter, code breakers, the history of code breaking with a real focus on what happened during World War II when the Allies used code breaking and, and coded too, or code breaking and code keeping, uh, which apparently, according to David Kahn, uh, was a key to an Allied victory. And in fact, uh, the uh, Germans were not as sophisticated in code breaking or in codes as the Allies. Uh, what's interesting about this... That they, doesn't make any sense Why to me. not? Because the Germans were great <laughs> at a lot of things. I don't generalize. People, you know... I'm not talking about the German people. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, think of all this... Think of all the scientific knowledge that came out of... Uh, Tamsin. The German universities. This guy wrote Think a book of, about it. art history, you know, okay. languages. Um, there's a lot right. of knowledge. This fellow, now that you mention it, his dissertation, he got a doctorate, uh, was called Hitler's Spies, German Military Intelligence in World War II, uh, drawing on extensive interviews with former high-ranking Nazi officials. He demonstrated that Germany's intelligence apparatus had been woefully behind those of Britain and the United States. And that caused them to commit You know why? Because they alienated letters. all the really smart guys like Einstein. Right, enough. Yeah. Enough. Uh, who knows? The, the point is uh, the idea of code breaking. Well, see, that's the thing. All the really smart guys were probably Jewish. Tamsin, can we move on? Okay. okay. <laughs> code breaking, as far as this guy is concerned. Uh, Just trying to understand. Yeah. Well, you're not going to get it that way. The uh, point is this cryptography was a subject which hadn't been much studied and was considered highly sensitive. So when he went to publish his book, The Codebreakers, uh, the uh, government... was a revelation. The Department of Defense tried to stop it. Forget revelation. They tried to stop it because they felt that it had military-sensitive information. In he was it. giving away all the secrets. Yeah. And of course, they didn't base that on anything. They just said, here's something that we know is sensitive. We don't understand it. Let's stop the publication. Now they're sounding like the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. So in any event, they tried to stop it. They removed one part of one chapter... That had to do with British intelligence, but there was no reason to stop it otherwise. And uh, David Kahn was a person who was of great concern to the NSA, the National Security Agency. Eventually, he won them over, and uh, later in the 90s, they invited him to be a what they called um, the scholar-in-residence at the NSA. Scholar-in-residence. And later, he was, in, he was uh, inducted into the Cryptology Hall of Fame, which apparently the NSA also has, the Cryptology Hall of Fame. So uh, he went full Another circle. Hall of Fame will never be asked to join. Yes, well, it's a secret, Tamsin. If you, if you have to ask, <laughs> you, you don't really know. So it's just funny that cryptology, just by the name of it being cryptology, everybody says, don't talk about that, it's a big secret. And uh, <laughs> it's really weird. So here's something, and finally, Walter Shawley. Here's the headline, Head Geek of the slide rules universe. There's a slide rules universe. Um, yeah. So here's a guy who was an avionics engineer living in uh, British Columbia. And he happened to come upon uh, his old slide rule, which was in his desk. This was in when he was in middle age. Uh, and uh, he was very impressed with uh, what could shape you within, and it brought back all kinds of memories about slide rules. Now, did you ever use a slide rule? Do you have memories of In slide fact, rule? when I was uh, dismantling our old house, yes. in the junk drawer, yeah. in the kitchen, yeah. was my slide rule. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Mm. So you did use a slide rule in high school? I tossed it as quickly as possible. Are you possi- kidding? 
that you know, he had the opposite reaction. I haven't I haven't even looked at it for fifty years. Did, what uh, possible good did I, did you use I, it when you were in high school? It was an ordeal. We all had to learn to is, is use the, it. The answer is yes. I'm, like, I'm trying to get the answer. I my did question. not use it. I I I. Did things on it when people made me. But That's I called using it. Right. Didn't use it. It was of no earthly use. Did I ever have a question where I said to myself, "Wait, let me get out my uh, slide rule." Tavson, Tavson, the nature of school is you're answering questions that are not interesting to you. That's what school is. If you go to the dictionary, that's what's called school. So when school says to you, "Give me the answer to blank," you would use your slide rule as necessary to come up with the answer. Correct? If Yes. If necessary. It's necessary. The whole school. So when I went, when I was a freshman at Princeton, yes, my roommate Kathy Brewington, right. her father she, owned a typewriter store. She was an in engineer, Texas. wasn't she? No. Okay. She owned. Her father owned a typewriter store in Texas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he had adding machines. Okay. okay? When she came back for fall break. She brought with her an adding right, machine. Okay, so she was the star right. of Holton of the Holder okay. Hall. So first of all, okay, we... that was before even calculators. Okay, so... Two years later, everybody had a calculator they right. could hold in their okay. hand. Before adding machines, there were slide rules. All right, you're with me there. Now, right. do we have to? Explain... But this guy is like yeah, just so a little. Old. That, 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 that. Do we have to explain this... what a slide rule is? Or no, is don't even explain. Fine. So it's this a weird thing. Okay, so this guy not. Electric. He used a slide rule every day in the 60s. And in any event, his thought was, first of all, he's excited by the slide rule. He said he loved slide rules. And he says, we use, here's a quote from him. When we use slide rules every day back in the 60s, we were able to send people to the moon. All right. People who grow up with calculators have no number sense. His point being that you learn more by using a slide rule, all right? And they have a quote from someone else. The guy's name is Pasquale. He's a professor at UCLA. He says, calculators tend to replace the human mind, requiring users only to punch in numbers and blindly accept a result, leading to a loss of the user's own ability to calculate and more generally to think, whereas slide rules demand active involvement, extending the mind's calculating ability that's Listen, the critical i'm 100 percent behind yeah extending the mind's capability okay and using your brain and right. knowing how to do well, that arithmetic okay okay uh, if that is what it took for me i wouldn't be able to do anything <laughs> all right if all it right. was the slide there I did not find the slide rule all right, all right. particularly so you are not in engaging. You're not in the demographic. Okay? But okay? I do not think. Yeah. I do not. I you know, I, I think we do overuse calculators, and uh, I see uh, Nico, who is uh, trying to teach math. Yeah. All right, struggling to you know get the kids to use their brains. Well, here's to do my question: addition, is, subtraction, let's go multiplication, etc. We can't answer this question. Yeah. Uh, Do you think it's a it's a possible solution for Nico to introduce slide rules in her classroom? I think, think that would be very cruel <laughs> for you <laughs> to even suggest that oh to her. God. Did did you ever use a slide rule after you Barely. got it, out of whatever grade? Did you I, use a slide rule in college? Uh, no. Okay. No, no. 
No. All right. But I was taking theoretical math. You weren't doing anything that you needed a calculator or a slide rule. It wasn't that kind of thing. Okay. But uh, listen, I'm not saying I'm a slide rule whiz. I could use it a little bit. But I do remember being in the physics classroom in high school, and they had a model slide rule. Which was about eight oh, a feet big long, giant one. Big yeah, 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 yeah. You know, every right. math teacher so there, has that was hanging a... on over the blackboard. Right, 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 right. Okay. Listen, this guy is it, fine. It's nostalgia. I, I see the point. I see the point. Well, it's, it's more than nostalgia. It's not... He he made a living out of it because he right. He, well, here's the but other the slide problem. rule is not going nobody's to... making them anymore. So that's why he had a website. He look, cornered the market on slide rule. Go around and look in everybody's junk drawer who's about uh, <laughs> 69 years old. And you'll find, you'll find it. That's that's what he does. Because it, whereas every product in the world, you go to Amazon, you punch it in, and they've got, they're bringing it in from overseas. There's, nobody's making slide rules. Nobody. So that's what you got to do. You got to go to people's drawers. And, uh, you know, and they know. can keep them. <laughs> He is welcome to them. Well, he's passed away. So in any event, uh, all right. So that's all we have uh, this week. Uh, very busy well, it's week. momentous week. A momentous welcome, week. Rafi. Welcome, Rafa. Rafa. We don't know really what her nickname will be yet. Ella, whatever. Rafaela. We love you. Yes, we welcome Rafaela and uh, keep your eye on Hasbone. He's capable of anything. Uh, and we'll see. <laughs> This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper and loving those babies. See you next week.